Hello, Politics and Media 101 listeners. Today we have a special episode. I feel like we say every episode is a special episode. But the last episode we were talking about the Arab Gulf states, and it was, you know, me talking a lot about stuff that I know about and matters to me. And today the tables have turned. We're going to be speaking to Justin in particular about the GOP House. And this is a topic that Justin is intimately familiar with and follows obsessively. So we've got a real expert here, even among our own cast, and we're very excited. There is so much going on in the Republican House caucus right now. They've just taken a very slim majority after the 2022 elections, but there's also all these other things that are going on in Congress. They have a leadership fight, which will be the focus of our discussion. Today, they're hosting Zelensky in a joint session before Congress, his first visit outside of Ukraine since the escalation starting February. Um, They also have these big spending bills that they're working on and have been a point of much controversy. Congress just got Trump's tax returns. Congress are releasing a report on the January 6th committee investigation. Everything's going on on Capitol Hill, Justin. That is true. And you were saying that Cutter matters deeply to you. I hope that the next Speaker of the House matters deeply to every American, John. So that's that's what we want to talk about. <laughs> I think the implication here is that Arab Gulf states don't matter to many of our <laughs> listeners, but we tried our best to explain why they do and should. But today we'll be talking about the U.S. Congress. And, you know, Justin's history, his personal career history, as I'm sure our listeners have heard many times, because he does tend to emphasize this, uh, was as a staffer in a Republican House office. It was one of the House offices that was affiliated with what was then called the Tea Party, and has kind of evolved into this Freedom Caucus, the right wing of the GOP House conference. And these individuals and their offices have been at the center of lots of shenanigans, And they are indeed at the center of the shenanigans that we're seeing right now about the speakership race. And the debt limit. Yeah, yeah. All this stuff. And also, um, all the complaints that we're hearing about Zelensky's visit are probably coming really from those quarters, too. (laughs) Yeah. Really upstanding citizens. Indeed, indeed. So Justin is the perfect person to talk to about this and to give us kind of the lowdown on what's going on. So let's start with this leadership race, which is really going to be the big focus of our discussion today. So tell us, Justin, what is the current status of the leadership race? They're electing a speaker now that they're in the majority. What's going on? How close are we to having a speaker? So I'd start out by arguing that nobody really knows what is going to happen. And that includes Kevin McCarthy. That includes probably the five or six members that are vociferously opposed to any type of McCarthy speakership at the current moment. But we are more confident than not on certain possibilities. And and we'll get into those possibilities, John. Um, And also from our experience, uh, my experience working in the House and then even outside uh, working with the Republicans to get legislation through, um, and, and my personal friends and connections on that side of the aisle, we're not some, for example, civil libertarian that maybe has worked with these group of folks at one point in their life on a piece of legislation. Uh, we've actually lived and breathed this type of 
uh, steering committee battle, this type of speakership battle, and understand where these members that are opposed to Kevin McCarthy are coming from and the members that are defending him very loudly, where they're coming from too. Uh, This is different than a policy fight. This is brass knuckle political fight. So so it's a very, very different thing. Um, But where we stand right now, according to reports, and again, this is all subject to change, is you have 222 Republicans that will be in the House. So McCarthy, I think, can only lose four votes. And he's uh, lost five, according to all public reports. You have the Congressman Biggs, Norman, Good, Gates, and Rosendale. They're all saying they won't vote for McCarthy no matter what. Now, they can not vote for him, but they can also not vote for anybody else. And McCarthy can still be speaker uh, if those five stay together. So there's some technical differences that we can get into. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think it's really important to understand the, the dynamic a little bit further. And, and Lauren Boebert's the sixth. She's saying she won't vote for McCarthy without a vacate to motion to chair. We can get into all that and, and the political jargon. But we, we should just take a very quick look at who these members are. Are they the type of members like Michael McCall, who's you know the chair of the Foreign Affairs, will be the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee for the Republicans, who are serious legislators, who put their nose down, who work on passing legislation, who work you know on strengthening our institutions, or are they different? And and I would say they are different. And and let's just quickly review them. One is Mr. Ralph Norman. He's the individual that texted Mark Meadows asking for Trump to create martial law so that he could subvert the will of the people in our free and fair elections and stay president. You had Andy Biggs, who many would argue is, you know, that type of Paul Gozar, anti-immigrant, racist, xenophobe, who's your typical House Freedom Caucus member, Matt Gates. Everybody knows the allegations swirling around him for a variety of different things, but also not a legislator. He was the type of person that I think wore a gas mask on the House floor at the start of COVID to mock the seriousness of COVID. Um, And then you have Bob Good and Matt Rosendale, who are, again, these type of hardline conservatives. So it's really just a group of, I would argue, anti-social, anti-governing conservatives that are opposed to Kevin McCarthy. This is nothing to praise Kevin McCarthy or anything about the man. This is just to kind of outline his opposition. And and if we are to believe what these folks are saying, they say that they will vote together as a group of five, either all in favor of a speaker or all against a favor. So if we are to trust them at their and take them at their word, which we probably shouldn't do, um, then Kevin McCarthy will not be the next speaker per the vote that is upcoming on January 3rd, Mr. Gunnison. So we have a lot of questions right now. So it's interesting, Justin, that you name these five characters. We're, we're talking about five members of Congress. And it is kind of funny how in the last 12 years or so, the protagonists of Congress at large in some ways, but especially on the Republican side, do happen to be these kind of extreme voices as you characterize. I mean, five people that are holding up this important election to name a speaker they have the agenda, they have the initiative, and all the other members of Congress, where are they in this? You know, I mean, it, McCarthy, according to your telling, has over 200 members that are ready to vote for him, but we have to hear about these five and their complaints. And it seems as though this is kind of the story of the GOP 
caucus over the last 12 years is really just ceding the initiative to those sorts of characters in that group. And I think some of the other members of Congress, you know, these other 200 Republicans, mostly quite conservative, but uh, not with the same approach to politics as that group, you know, they want to get a little bit more of the initiative back. And they're starting to get a little bit frustrated that we spend all of our time in the news and in DC talking about Mad Gates. And we heard one proposal from one of these members of Congress, someone who came on PM 101 before Don Bacon, an idea about how to retake the initiative and kind of rebalance uh, the center of gravity away from that group. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, John. And I, th- I think honestly, if we, we should maybe even back up a little bit further and get into the context of what a GOP-controlled House in the legislative landscape of a Democrat Senate and Democrat president actually means. Like, what will Speaker of the House mean? What will that power be? Why are these fights happening? And I think really, John, these fights are happening because largely speaking, you can do absolutely nothing when you are uh, in control of the House legislatively and you don't control the Senate and you don't control the White House. It's going to be very difficult to pass legislation. It's going to be very difficult to really bring the initiative forward on anything other than messaging bills. What is a messaging bill? A messaging bill is like the Democrats voting legislation, something that you just stack with all your wish list uh, and pass it through the House. And then when it goes to die in the Senate, you can go to your voters, you can go to your grassroots folks that are involved in politics and say, look, we've tried to pass this. We can't pass this because of the big bad Democrats. If we just win the Senate, keep the House and win the White House in 2024, we'll be able to pass these things. Probably most infamously, Obamacare repeal legislation were a series of messaging votes that I experienced in the House. Um, So that is to say that the speakership is not meaningless, though, because in addition to being able to carry out investigations, which um, the way that the GOP will carry these out will be political in nature and probably won't have much value otherwise, there will be massive fights on government spending and the debt ceiling. So they probably won't be able to accomplish much in those fights. But if they do stick together and on a party line in the House against raising the debt ceiling, they can do unforeseen damage to our economy. They, they can basically sink the thing. Um, and that gets us into our point of why these things are happening. These things are happening because despite having won a majority, they're not going to be able to accomplish anything So you're going to have a lot of folks that are especially backbenchers, like the five folks that we mentioned. They're not chairman or chairwoman of committees. They're not particularly respected in the caucus. So they're not going to be advancing legislation that has a real chance of passing. They're going to do anything they can to to get into the headline and to make news. Um, And that is, in my humble opinion, why we're seeing this right now. These folks want conflict. They're kind of your antisocial folks. And they also just really don't like Kevin McCarthy. They see the ability to kind of get some attention here. Um, but that's also the stunts that you're going to be seeing to a lesser degree uh, throughout the GOP's control these next two years of the House. So, so I think that just to kind of reset like the context that we're experiencing this in, if the Republicans had won a, a massive sweeping red wave and, and got the Senate, we, we, we just wouldn't be seeing this type of situation arise. So I do want to get back to this Don Bacon thing and the other shenanigans and mechanisms and other ways in which this speakership fight can play out. But just kind of coming off to what you've just said, Justin, I mean, you're describing 
this Grinlock scenario. And we know voters hate Grinlock, but that is kind of assumed to be the way things are going to operate when you've got divided government, which we end up having in the United States all the time because of the way our system is designed. We divide the legislative process in three different parts. We've got the House, the Senate, of course, but also the presidency, because the president is one of the most significant legislative actors because the veto power. So we're dividing legislative power in three different ways. And we are kind of assuming based on recent memories that when you've got divided government, nothing's going to happen. You'll, you'll have fights over spending bills and you'll eke something out in the 11th hour and that's all. But I mean, it doesn't really need to be this way. It really doesn't. Um, you can look back at other times in U.S. history when there was a divided government and initiatives happened. And we can also even just look at the way that the, the Republican Senate have been approaching their pretty powerful minority role because of the vo- rules about cloture, you know, which is something called the filibuster. If you have a, a minority but more than 40 seats, you're an important actor in the legislative process, too. I guess that's another way in which we've divided legislative power. But if you look at the way that they've been approaching their powerful minority role the last two years, you can see where legislative initiatives can happen through bipartisan initiative. And the GOP controlled House could take things in that direction, right? I mean, they don't need to replay 2011 to uh, 2017 Grinlock playbook. Some of it is up to these leaders to come up with some policy areas of interest and work on them. But we're really not seeing very much of that. I mean, McCarthy, who was kind of the de facto leader of the GOP House campaign in this last election, he put out this commitment to America document, you know, again, cribbing a past practice from GOP campaigns, a clear reference to Gingrich and the contract for America. But there wasn't really a whole lot there, was it? And he hasn't really given a lot of indication about the policy areas that he's really interested in. And that's something that we have to acknowledge when we're talking about McCarthy. That's kind of the biggest part of the story is that, I mean, to be crude, the gentleman is a bit of an empty suit and uh, hasn't demonstrated a lot of interest in, in policy matters in general. And so when we're talking about this gridlock scenario that you're describing, it doesn't really need to be that way, but it, it likely will be if McCarthy is the speaker, because there isn't interest and energy and curiosity or creativity about the other ways in which Congress can operate. So, so some would say, well, John, he's going to be beholden to the House Freedom Caucus and those five members that we talked about, or maybe more accurately, the 41 members of the House Freedom Caucus in general. What can he do when these folks don't want to legislate? And their priorities are seriously backwards, and we can get into some of them. But I would argue that you're right. And all that we need to do, we don't need to look at the way that the Senate has you know, worked to build a bipartisan consensus for the bipartisan infrastructure bill uh, and encourage their members to vote their conscience while Kevin McCarthy whipped against that vote or any other number of examples, the 21 senators that are probably supportive of the budget uh, deficit deal that is likely to, to come to fruition here and how McCarthy is saying he's vowing to provide political retribution to any senator that works to vote to pass this piece of legislation, which we can get into later in the show. And I think we should. It's an interesting topic. We just need to go back and I'll take folks down memory lane. One of my favorite topics was when uh, Paul Ryan became speaker after John Boehner. John Boehner lost his job, obviously, because of 
almost identical dynamics to what we're seeing right now. Um, but that being said, Paul Ryan still worked his tail off to carry the votes of folks like my former boss to ensure that President Obama's top legislative priority for his second term was passed through the House with Republican support. And that was the Trade Promotion Authority, which in doing so led to the USMCA trade deal because we use that authority and is generally praised by folks from unions to big agribusiness and trade. Um, So that is to say, although I disagreed a lot with uh, Speaker Ryan, he had legislative priorities, one being trade, and he was able to be a leader, which is shaping the moment around your will, as opposed to bending around the moment, uh, and ultimately get enough votes, convince folks like my boss, who was a Freedom Caucus member, and Mick Mulvaney, who was a Freedom Caucus member, to support the legislation and get it through. Kevin McCarthy, though, John, he has uh, none of that. So, And he's in a, a even more politically perilous situation than Speaker Ryan really ever found himself in due to a variety of reasons. I think that you've given a very good example, Justin, the trade matter, because like you said, this was an issue that actually mattered to Paul Ryan. It was something that he cared about and wanted to achieve. Real quick, John, it wasn't like he mattered because he you know, wanted to help big corporations out. This was like an ideologically core view of his that he believed advancing would help America. Yeah, yeah. Kind of libertarian economic attitude that generally comports to free trade-ism. <laughs> uh, but I think this is an excellent example because I think sometimes we get in the habit of looking at legislation through the perspective of the Democrats because so much of the legislative initiative is with them because they're generally the ones with the more ambitious proposals. And so when we talk about opportunities for bipartisanism, we're sometimes saying, oh, why don't you just go along with this thing that the Democrats want and, and prove how moderate you are and how cooperative you are? You know, we say like, oh, come on, you know, McConnell or, or McCarthy, why don't you just say, wouldn't the public option for healthcare be great? And you sign up for that and you show that you're, you know, productive. And the example that you gave is a better one because it, it shows how the Republican leader in that scenario was pursuing something that he wanted to achieve for his own conservative ideological agenda. And it's a little bit similar with some of the things that I was referencing that McConnell was able to achieve with his powerful minority position in the last Congress, like the CHIPS, the CHIPS Act. This was something that McConnell wanted to do, not because he wanted to prove that he knew how to get along with Democrats, but because he sincerely believed in the policy and was one of the drivers in pursuit. And that's also a, uh, and you know, the TPP uh, as well, because that was new frontier for trade, the CHIPS Act, a new frontier for industrial policy in American business. That's part of what it takes if you really want to be a, a valuable legislator with a, a, a legacy and an agenda is finding new areas to explore for policy innovation. I think with McCarthy and some of the others, they're really just looking back on, oh, how did we play it the last time we're in power? Let's kind of go through all that again. What are the issues we already have in our basket? You know, the border wall, uh, abortion, you know, these kind of familiar stuff that's associated, kind of coded along our ideological side. And if you veer in that direction, you're not really going to achieve very much, especially in divided government when the battle lines are already so clearly drawn on those topics. Instead, what you need to do is find new areas to explore if you really want to get something done. And you're never going to get anywhere if you're just 
replaying all the old stuff. Like what it really takes to be a forward thinking, valuable contributor to U.S. history and U.S. government is to find the things that other people haven't thought of and already pursued a lot of the time and, and, and carve out your agenda in that direction. So that's what we're really not seeing at all from McCarthy, as far as I'm aware. We're not. I was just trying to, as you were discussing this, I was trying to go back and think about what we've seen from Speaker Boehner. And there was, at, at that time, John, there was the Gang of Eight negotiations on immigration. That takes a lot of guts to allow to happen. It's much easier to just automatically whip against that. If he had come out, it, it would have died instantly, instantaneously. But you know, that's something that that he believed in. There were bailouts, I think, when when he was uh, in charge. I have an example for Boehner. So ethics reform, right? Boehner banned earmarks, yep. famously, yep. right? Infamously, and some would argue. This was. Yeah, they're back. I was going to get to that a little bit. I mean, this was something that the public were calling for and was a feature of GOP campaigns, not so much Democratic campaigns. Again, it's not just about let's do what the Democrats say to prove that we can get along. It's about finding an area that you want to pursue and pursuing and achieving it. And that was what Boehner did. They promised that they were going to ban these earmarks and he went ahead and did that. And are earmarks corrupt? They're corrupt in the way that some of the stuff we were talking about in the last episode might be <laughs> like the BN sports deal that Cutter made as they were bidding for the World Cup. It's legitimate and it's not against the, the rules of the game, but it's something that benefits you a bit personally and politically so that you can pursue something else. Um, so is it good for good government ethics? Probably yes. And it was something that been achieved as part of his legacy. However, <laughs> It may have doomed his his speakership because that was one of the few carrots that speakers and whips had to offer to members as they tried to get them along on the big votes and the big policy fights. And, you know, since then, they've had quite a lot of difficulty getting the the conference in order without that to offer. Right. Yes. Yes. It's one of the leverage levers, like you said, of power that you can pull to incentivize folks to do what you want them to do. Um, it's basically comes down to without earmarks, you have an opaque and convoluted and complex federal bureaucracy formula that's doling out these monies. Uh, with earmarks, you get to say, uh, hey, um, Congressman Gates, you vote this way, we'll give your district 500 million dollars for a bridge or whatever. It's not giving them money. It's giving the district uh, more assets to be able to enhance uh, you know, its offerings to its constituents. Um, and good lawmakers are ones that fight for their district and really leverage earmarks. And earmarks are back. They recently voted on them within the Republican conference because there were thoughts that maybe the Freedom Caucus would try and tear those away again. Earmarks remain. So that remains a quiver in the toolbox or so it's back in the toolbox however the impact of how the withdrawal of earmarks has affected the operation of the conference in practice is still there right so you've got members who were elected and and cut their teeth on policy fights and legislative fights during the era of no earmarks who have now molded their behavior around a new battlefield Right. So even if you put earmarks back, you know, is Matt Gates 
going to be bought off by a new bridge uh, as a rider on some bill. You see what I mean? You've got a whole generation of, of people who came up and learned how to do legislation without earmarks. The, their leverage, and we can get into this, their leverage is so much greater than a bridge <laughs> at this moment. I can't wait to see what Marjorie Taylor Greene receives uh, from Kevin McCarthy. So so we mentioned these, these five, and maybe we'll go to the Democrat uh, question uh, before we get into this. But yeah, we've already gone for 20 minutes since I asked the question about that, <laughs> that idea. So <laughs> let's go back to that. It's we're, a we're stupid talking- idea. Yeah. We, can, we can end this idea real quick. Tell us about what, what Don Bacon suggested that they could do as an alternative to placating these five members who are threatening McCarthy. What has happened, and we love Don Bacon. I, I can speak for myself. I think he's a good member. I think he has uh, the best interests of the country at heart. He's one who voted for the bipartisan infrastructure bill, for example, um, so on and so forth. He runs a moderate campaign. He's pro-democracy, all these things. Kevin McCarthy is right now in a box. His head is in the guillotine right now. That's, that's where he's at. Um, and it's not a comfortable place to be extending your neck. So what he's doing is he's trying to go around and get any single favor he can call in to rally the troops, to change the narrative, to get support and pick off one of these crazy five members. So Don Bacon is a rep from, I think, Nebraska's first moderate district. He came out and he made like massive news waves because you have a lot of uninformed columnists just eating up everything that they hear, being drama queens and taking things and running with it. And he said, one way, instead of appeasing to these hardliners, we can work with Democrats to elect a speaker. Um, A lot of people took that as Republicans working with Democrats to vote for a Democrat. I give that possibility of 0.0000001%. Most seasoned uh, folks who kind of understand what's going on took that as maybe peeling off a few Democrats to work with Republicans to vote for either Kevin McCarthy or a different type of palatable speaker. Um, but that is to say, John, I find the odds in in practice, it, in theory, yes, it's possible that you could have Democrats work with Republicans to elect a Democrat as speaker or Democrats work with Republicans to elect a moderate Republican as speaker. Um, the chance of that happening, though, John, in practice, I would say are zero. Uh, theoretically possible. I just think it's for a variety of reasons, just not realistic. McCarthy has already been using this possibility that was floated by Bacon as a way of trying to get the rest of the conference on side and to go to these five and say, look, what could happen? You know, if you vote against me, maybe they'll pull this move. I mean, that only works if there is at least some credibility and some possibility that it could really happen, right? I mean, could those five members hear the Bacon idea and get a call from McCarthy and saying, look what they're going to do and take it seriously? They'd sooner spit in McCarthy's face than than take anything like that seriously. And and to be to get into it a little bit more, you and I have had, had a conversation about this. But but John, realistically, if you get, let's say you get five Democrats, right, to do this, um, it's similar to how Nancy Pelosi twisted the arm of the Democrats to vote for Obamacare. Those five members, in my humble opinion, would be afraid of losing a primary. Whether or not they'd lose a primary or not, they would be afraid of losing a primary because the ads run themselves. Look at these people. They just voted for a Republican for Speaker of the House. They don't have the best interests of the party at heart. Not only that, John, take that aside. If you do get five Democrats to, to vote for uh, you know, a Republican, moderate Republican Speaker of the House, 
you're going to have 40 members of the House Freedom Caucus. You, you had five opposed to it. You're going to have 40 freaking out saying Democrats are choosing the next speak, Republican Speaker of the House. This is terrible. Um, and then instead of needing five Democrats, you're going to now need 40 Democrats. And I find that very hard to believe. I'd never bet against Nancy Pelosi, but I just don't see the incentive for Democrats to um, extend their political capital to help the Republicans figure out their own dilemma. When in reality, John, we could we could literally have this fight. It probably won't go. It may be finished on the first ballot, but theoretically, it could go for a month. What better headlines with every single cable news, broadcast news, blog focused on Republican dysfunction in the House going into 2024 for a month? They can't pick a speaker. Like it doesn't get better than that. So there's just no political incentive. Same for, you know, like five moderate Republicans to band with the Democrats. They'd all lose their seat. They'd probably get kicked out of the conference. So it just, it, it doesn't pass the smell test, you know? So, I mean, we're describing a scenario that seems unresolvable because you've got such a slim majority for the Republicans in the next Congress, and you've got enough members who can prevent a majority vote absolutely committed to not under any circumstances backing Kevin McCarthy as speaker. And these are people who mean it. These are people who are absolutely committed and looking for conflict. And there's enough of them that they can stop a majority vote. You are also telling us that there isn't any conceivable situation where the Democrats can really come in and help someone else take the speakership because the math will collapse on both sides. You'll have Democrats who are afraid of doing anything to help a Republican take the speakership. And you've also got a group in the Republican conference that won't let that happen either. So... <laughs> Where does that leave us? I mean, it, it's making me think about in Lebanon or in Northern Ireland when they can't form a government because of sectarian gridlock. And you go a whole year, maybe two years, maybe three years without even having a head of government at all, no prime minister, no president, and so on. I mean, it seems like we're heading in that direction based on the scenario that you're describing. It seems absolutely unresolvable mathematically. Well, John, you used a very important word that I think we can even use in a different way than you did. You said we have five members that are absolutely committed. I think some of them should be committed, maybe, <laughs> to an ah, institution. I, I see what you did there. Because <laughs> um, these are these are some interesting fellows. Um, so, uh, John, there are so many ways that this could be resolved, right? The... Uh, Although by the day, I'm thinking this is more and less and less and less likely. I still think that this is the most likely outcome as we sit here, December 21st. We get to a first ballot. Speaker uh, or Leader McCarthy buys off one of these five members, promises them something. They all stab the other four in the back. They flip first ballot Kevin McCarthy speaker. And that really is still probably the most likely um, way to go about it. And and why? why? Why do I say that? I think it's interesting that one of his biggest defenders out there, so you mentioned Don Bacon, the moderate lane. And Kevin McCarthy is viewed at as a squishy moderate. So the, like throughout his career, he's been kind of a nothing burger moderate. Well, I think that he's considered a little bit of everything, isn't he? I mean, in some ways, 
a moderate at some points in his career, but then at other times morphing himself, remaking himself as a Trumpist. We know that he was much closer with Trump than his counterpart in the Senate side, McConnell. It's been said again and again in so many media that Trump used to call him my Kevin, that he owned him, that he was his pet. So he did own him. He was like uh, yeah. he was like Reek in Ga- Game of Thrones. You know the story about the starburst, right? No. How about how McCarthy picked all of the color of starburst that Trump liked? It was red or I, I don't know which color it was. But and he made a big jar that had only that color, and he he gave it to Trump. That's pathetic. Yeah, the the guys the guys a pathetic pathetic. Uh, God forbid that he becomes speaker. And and I know that the alternatives are probably potentially worse for the country, John. But could you imagine somebody what that says about the values of one of the political parties in our country, where you have this just uh, horrible hollow empty suit of a soul become speaker of the house the third in line to be president well as we were preparing for this discussion i read a couple profiles of mccarthy including one that you recommended from the new yorker magazine and i want to get the name of the writer because i want to credit him jonathan blitzer um and so it was describing mccarthy's tenure as a leader and it's saying that he wouldn't provide guidance or leadership on some of the key votes, including the vote over the election, counting the electoral votes. And this was a time when members of Congress were getting threats from constituents and activists, and they needed a little bit of leadership cover and a little bit of guidance, and McCarthy wouldn't offer it. And there were some other examples of times on on major votes, McCarthy said, oh, well, vote however you like, and wouldn't offer that kind of guidance. And it's making me wonder, and maybe I'm being a little bit facetious here. But if it really is much of a difference, whether McCarthy becomes speaker or whether they do go the Lebanon route and have no speaker, which we described as being a real possibility here. If you've got such an empty vessel in office who doesn't do any of the things that a speaker is meant to do, provide any kind of guidance whatsoever, he's just sort of filling and warming a seat. What's the difference between having him and no speaker at all? Well, and just to show you the type of personality and character that Kevin McCarthy has, he was one of the members to vote to not certify the election, just in case there was any questions uh, about that. Um, John, I think you do need a speaker. And I think it's very important that we have a speaker, and we will have a speaker. Um, but specifically, just for the, the the budget and debt ceiling stuff, those are the things that need to be passed. You need a National Defense Authorization Act. You need to raise the debt ceiling, you need a budget. And depending on who that speaker is and how this resolves itself and how much political capital that speaker has, there is a potential that they can find a way to avoid you know, a default or a government shutdown or any of those real nasty things that actually hurt America and the overwhelming majority of Americans um, because they'll be able to come out of this battle for speaker with some type of power or they wouldn't take the position. And at the end of the day, if you don't have a, if you do have a speaker, it's somebody that is accountable, whether they like it or not, whether they do something that uh, results in the motion to vacate, which I think we should get into. um, They're ultimately the one that most of the media attention will be directed at and vitriol will just be spewed. So especially somebody like Kevin McCarthy, if in October 1st, he says, we're not going to, we're going to default on our debt. He's going to be the one 
receiving all the headlines and criticism from the Senate and so on and so forth. And he will fold because that's <laughs> whatever we don't know about Kevin McCarthy, we do know that he folds like a cheap suit. So, so I think that it's important to really pin it on that one person. And I think that you've pointed to something pretty significant here because if the U.S. were to default on the debt, that doesn't even just matter for us here in the United States. That's pretty significant for the global economy. I wish that we had an economist here in this discussion who could explain exactly the mechanisms and the fallout and the ripple effect of that. But I do recall that the last time that we came close, we had our credit rating downgraded. The U.S. The USA's credit rating was downgraded. You can imagine you know, the fallout for the global economy if something like this occurred and at a pretty precarious time for the global economy. But uh, before we get into the thing about the motion to vacate, I did interrupt you a minute ago because I, and I knew where you were trying to go with this. You said that McCarthy has been known at times to be moderate, but he has support from other factions in the party. And I know who you're thinking of, but why don't you go and and tell us a little bit about that? I think this is fascinating. So, so folks, Kevin McCarthy when I was working um, uh, for a Tea Party member, honestly, we didn't even deal with him. And and there were votes that my boss, they were trying to get him on. Um, they were trying to, Paul Ryan with TPA and other things with Boehner. Um, we would deal with Patrick McHenry or whoever was on the whip team at the time. So you have the whip, you have the leadership, and then for certain bills, they'll bring in other members to try and build support for that legislation. And that's the quote unquote whip team. Um and we just wouldn't deal with McCarthy, who was the, who was the whip, um, and, and I don't know why. Like I, I just don't think he was he wasn't that well known in the circles that we traveled in. He was definitely not well respected. People hated him. The Freedom Caucus had disdain for him, utter disdain for him. Um, where you had Walter Jones allude to in a rumor that you can go find in all these other types of mainstream outlets. I was just reading about it in Vox News. And the rumor, which is not substantiated, but most people on Capitol Hill believe to be true, um, and ultimately was a threat that likely got Kevin McCarthy not to be the next speaker and, and Paul Ryan took over, was the allegation that Kevin McCarthy was having an affair with fellow congressperson Renee Elmers from North Carolina. And, and Walter Jones alluded to this in a letter, and he said, we, I will not ta- we should not tolerate anybody that has moral issues becoming uh, the next speaker or in leadership, he said. He went as far to say that. Um, but but becoming the next speaker. Um, and he was, Walter Jones in an old interview I was reading before the show, was alluding to the affair, the alleged affair, which was in the article by Matt Iglesias, I think, or something like that. Um, but then he was also alleging to a bunch of other rumors. And I don't want to get into them, but they were just really not nice rumors about uh, Kevin McCarthy. Um, so, so you see that this person has animated one of the con- the conserv- the most conservative faction of the House to the point where they are threatening to drag his name and another member's name through the mud, uh, and many and and then he he just withdraws. But back to your question, John, why the heck? So, so that's the dynamic. Why the heck is Marjorie Taylor Greene not only supporting? Kevin McCarthy, but she is out there, guns a-blazing. She's out there getting in Twitter fights with Lauren Boebert. She's out there uh, giving stump speeches with Kevin McCarthy. She just wrote an op-ed today uh, in support of Kevin McCarthy. What did he promise her? Well, 
in the article in the New Yorker, they indicate what he promised her, which is a spot on the House Oversight Committee. And Marjorie Taylor Greene was famously removed from all committees in the last Congress because of her many anti-Semitic, conspiratorial, violent, threatening comments that she's made throughout many of the recent years of her life, including her time as a candidate for office. Uh, I think that, just like you described, the way that the House is organized is partly ideological. You know, we're seeing that the Freedom Caucus is the the group that are opposing her they come out of that faction, which is an ideological faction, right? But it's also partly not ideological. It's partly this high school lunchroom thing uh, where how cool you are and who you're friends with and what you're promising people and who you live near and where you sit is determining your status and, and who you support. And McCarthy really is like a high school candidate. He's There's not a lot of substance, not a lot of policy. The things that people have complimented him for throughout his career have to do with his social skills, his charm, you know, his ability to remember people's birthdays and things like that. And to give you your he, little- He's a used car salesman, to be very jar. specific. Yeah, to give you your jar of Starburst and remember what your favorite flavor is, is a glad-handing, back-slapping- empty suit who's running for class president. John, I don't I and I just need to apologize to use car salesmen. I did not mean to malign them like that. Oh, indeed. So, <laughs> you see how it's partly ideological, but it's also partly not ideological. It's about co-opting these different personalities just as people and offering them things and making friends with them. And that's what McCarthy has always really tried to do is this amorphous character who's whoever he needs to be and is trying to promise something to everyone. Another figure that's considered, I think correctly, as being a real far far right nutcase is this guy, Jim Jordan, who many people probably know, um, who has also been sort of co-opted by McCarthy. He's going to be, under McCarthy's speakership, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. And so McCarthy is working all these different sides to try to piece together the votes he needs. But his habit of just promising everyone exactly what they want is is leading, sorry, leaving the House conference completely leaderless. Because we all know that a good parent or a good coach or a good teacher, a good leader is not someone who just says yes to everything. That's not a form of leadership really at all. And so in these difficult moments, we see how McCarthy's an inadequate figure to have at the top, like everything that happened around January 6th. So we just need to take a step back because you just said... uh and I didn't actually get to this part in the piece, but that McCart that what Marjorie Taylor Greene wanted was a position on the oversight committee. Now, you saying that she sold her soul for a position on oversight committee is mind blowing to me because normal serious <laughs> legislators, when you can extract a pound of flesh from Kevin McCarthy, you can get anything you want: ways and means, appropriations. Um, serious committees, John, that maybe armed services where you're controlling the budget because you care about actually how government money is spent. You have a hand in all of the big Pete, the omnibuses and the spending bills, or you're dictating military policy. No, she, she wants, <laughs> she wants a position on a committee so that she can be involved in investigations. That is 
that just shows you how we started this podcast about what's going to happen in this house. They, they don't care about policy. It's all going to be investigations. Um, so I just like needed to express my disgust with hearing that. And honestly, it's not even really about investigation substantively either. It's about media, right? I mean, what really drives so many of the right-wing activists in Congress today is, and also um, outside of Congress, is media. That's what they really care about. I mean, Ted Cruz, like his primary job is no longer to be a United States senator. It was Chris Hayes who said this. He's a podcaster who happens to have a Senate seat. And Marjorie Taylor Greene and these others understand that uh, these platforms, the judiciary oversight, the ones that have an investigatory role um, are the best platforms for combative, uh, televised political conflict. And that's where they want to be because that that's what drives them. And, you know, I wanted to make a, another point about McCarthy and his legacy and his career that is related to this support from Marjorie Taylor Greene. And that's that I think that someone like him who is so blinkered in his ambition towards one specific goal has ended up missing so many important things that are going to be legacy defining in his career, right? I mean, what matters to him more than anything else is that he will have the title of speaker. He's just like all the people in the British Tory party. We were making this comparison in a previous show who spent all their time thinking about how can I get that leadership position and very little time thinking about what do I want to do with this leadership position? And McCarthy has been racing towards the speakership for almost his entire career. But what he's missing along the way are these choices that he's making that are going to be the legacy defining choices. You know, visiting Donald Trump's resort in Florida after the attack on the U.S. Capitol because he thought that would help him get closer to the speakership. But when we're writing the Kevin McCarthy obituary, that's going to be in there. And Marjorie Taylor Greene, having Marjorie Taylor Greene as his most vocal supporter as he gets closer to the speakership. I mean, that's going to be there in his obituary that uh, he has deputized as his sort of communications director on this matter, a person who says that the Jews are using space later uh, lasers to cause wildfires in California, who say that the Sandy Hook and Parkland victims were uh, were fake crisis actors who said that Nancy Pelosi should be executed on and on and on. You know, this is who he is appointing as his spokesman as he nears the speakership. That's his conservative communications director for the conservative faction of the House. And this is how he's going to be remembered. And in focusing so much on just getting that title, getting that job title that he wants so much, he's missing all of this. Well, I, I think that there are some serious issues that you have as a human being that you're willing to you know, side with these racist, hateful folks, um, but not to be an armchair psychologist and, and dissect uh, Kevin McCarthy. I think that Marjorie Taylor Greene has been a valuable voice to him, as has Donald Trump. Um, the question now remains, though, are are these five? And you need to remember, and I go back to John Boehner, because you had really in, uninformed people on Twitter saying, oh, well, the moderates are just as in good position as the conservatives are to dictate who the next speaker is. The moderates generally care about the country. Generally speaking, I don't think Kevin McCarthy does. I don't know if he's a moderate. I don't know what he is. Um, but like Don Bacon and the other you know, handful of moderates, they typically will vote their conscience. They'll vote for bipartisan legislation that they think is in the right place. 
or I don't mean to interrupt you, but how about this also? They care about substantive things that value their districts or constituents too, right? Of I mean, course. the Pat Robertses of the world, why are they not acting like Marjorie Taylor Greene? Partly because they're trying to bring that farm money back home, right? So it's not, you know, we can get a little bit Aaron sorkin and talk about how, oh, the moderates are acting in the good of the country, but it's also a little bit more in some cases that they are just thinking about the substantive things that matter to their communities, their constituencies, and so on. You see what I mean? I don't want us to be too moralistic when we talk about the way some of these legislators are behaving, because sometimes it's just that kind of interest, but it is a substantive one, and it's one that requires you to do things uh, legislatively other than try to get on television. I agree totally. That's what they're sent to do, and that's how our system is created, right? You're going to have all of these different factions that arise because every single member that's there in the right place is trying to build up their district, and it's going to create strange bedfellows, and therefore you're not going to have the tyranny of the majority, which I don't want to get into Federalist Number 10 by Madison, um, but but it really is a bedrock of our system and our regime that we have. I want to bring this back to John Boehner because we got into this line of conversation because he rightly called these people, like my former boss, legislative terrorists. So when you have folks that say, oh, the Republicans could misplay this and the moderates could play a strong hand... Um, no, the, the moderates have principles. And, and I know that the conservatives would, uh, you know, call the moderates squishy and, and that they are all like Kevin McCarthy. Um, but it's truly the ones that are willing to, in a game of chicken that are willing to crash that really have the advantage, at least in this instance. And, and that's with these five. So the question that we need to ask, ask ourselves is, can Kevin McCarthy get these five to vote with them? If he can't, um, that's because whatever he promises them, they they can't do. Um, will a Democrat or moderate emerge? I say absolutely not. So then, what are we left with? And and that's you know the the next series of um, things that that we may have to look at on January third. I was reading Matt Gates' letter that was published in the Daily Caller, and it was all kinds of criticisms of McCarthy, anything that he could think of. Some of the things that are listed on there are actually somewhat sensible. Like he's criticizing McCarthy for asking for a no-fly zone in Syria after Russia were already operating in that airspace, which is a dangerous suggestion for the same reasons that it's dangerous to suggest that we do the same in Ukraine. And he criticizes McCarthy for his closeness with uh, large technology firms and their lobbying groups, in particular Amazon and Apple. And that's, I think, also a fair criticism. But there's a lot of stuff in here that's quite ridiculous, Uh, criticizing McCarthy for advocating for vaccines, criticizing McCarthy because he voted to remove Confederate anti-US traitors from places of commemoration in the US Capitol. Uh, So I think that Gates is really just throwing anything that he can And it appears as though the criticism of McCarthy is not really based on anything too substantive, but on some kind of personal animus and interest in finding conflict wherever he can. Well, I've read both Marjorie Taylor Greene's op-ed and Matt Gaetz's op-ed back to back. And I can say, while I agree with everything you said, John, that Matt Gaetz's op-ed had significantly more substance than Marjorie Taylor Greene's. Hers is probably twice as long with half the substance. And most of her op-ed is centered around her, which 
really shouldn't be that surprising. Um, I thought that Matt Gates, like you had mentioned, he did have some serious points where Kevin McCarthy doesn't stand for anything. And he quotes the New Yorker feature that you had so aptly started our discussion off with. Uh, and there were other criticisms by Matt Gates of Kevin McCarthy um, that I thought rung true, whereas Mar- <laughs> it was it was ironic. Marjorie Taylor Greene was calling these folks liars. Uh, the the five that she disagrees with, and she was decrying the kind of horse trading that goes on in Washington, D.C., yet you and I, even just on this show, were both talking about how she's definitely done some horse trading, and that's the only reason why she's supporting Kevin McCarthy. Um, So so I think that it's it's interesting. I think that this is one of the dynamics that's different than the 2014-2015 flare-ups against John Boehner, where the House Freedom Caucus was generally all in rowing in the same direction, and they pretty much just held out until the leaders like Mulvaney and Meadows and Jordan could extract more from leadership. Um, in this instance, you really do have five or six members or so that are opposed to it with the rest of the Freedom Caucus relatively uh, on board. And I think that that brings us to our next point. So we've gone over a variety of scenarios where I think the alternative, Steve Scalise, is probably the best fit because, like we said, those five are just opposing to oppose. And once he ultimately, um, once if Kevin McCarthy's not elected and and there's you know clear that he needs to step down and take himself off the ballot, in my opinion, Steve Scalise will emerge. He will likely be the next speaker just because these folks have gotten the scalp on their wall. I think what else is interesting, though, so you have these five that are firmly against Kevin McCarthy being speaker, and then a sixth, um, you have Andy Biggs saying it's probably double-digit members. But you again, you can't take these people even at their word, never mind their speculation. Uh, and then you have Lauren Boebert, who says she won't vote for the only way she'll vote for Kevin McCarthy is if he includes a motion to vacate the speaker. Um, So in Matt Gaetz's op-ed, he says that the motion to vacate has existed from, I think it was 1801 to 2018. And the motion to vacate is what these rabble rousers, these frisky kids or legislative terrorists, as Mr. Boehner would call them, used to overthrow him as speaker. What is that? It's a privileged motion. I'm not going to get into the House procedure, but basically any member of the House can bring up a motion to vacate the chair, which means that it's a, for our British listeners, it's a vote of no confidence. Uh, It's a vote on the speaker. Um, So in this situation, you're going to have all the Democrats vote against uh, vote no confidence. And, and then what will you have for Republicans? Um, right now in 2018, they got rid of that. So the last four years or so it just hasn't existed. The question is now whether this is brought back, whether it's brought back under a theoretical Kevin McCarthy or Steve Scalise speaker, or, you know, your unicorn fanciful made up columnist BS about a moderate or a Democrat speaker. Will there be a motion to vacate? Um, why does this matter? I think it matters because it really will depend. It will it will define the amount of power that the Freedom Caucus and the most extreme voices in the party have. So, in a hypothetical, it's October 2023. We have a, a debt ceiling limit coming up. We got to raise the limit or raise the ceiling. Um, if we don't, uh, we'll we'll default on our debt. We'll get downgraded as a credit rating. Our stock market will crash. Economic, um, bad, bad, bad economic uh, results will happen from this. If Kevin McCarthy is able to 
maintain that there is no motion to vacate and he's able to keep it out and he's speaker or Steve Scalise, they can then work with Democrats to freely protect the credit and economy and standing in the United States on the world stage and pass a piece of legislation. However, John, if the conservatives, if Kevin McCarthy goes as far to say, folks, you can just vote for me, we'll include the motion to vacate. This is now back on the table. It's like uh, the scene of Lord of the Rings, the original movies where the gob- the goblins of the orcs uh, yell, meats back on the table, fellas, and they're eating one of their own. That's exactly what including the motion to vacate is. Because once that happens, it'll only take five members of the House to side with Democrats to get rid of Kevin McCarthy. And any type of contentious bill, any type of contentious legislation, like a government funding bill or a debt limit bill that is opposed by the most ardent conservatives. And John, these are folks that you got to realize a year into this thing, they're going to be itching for that media attention. It's like a drug and they're addicted to it. Like you've explained, they're they're just going to focus on it. So anything that they can use that will gain them brownie points with their base, no matter the cost to American lives, uh, they will use. Um, so if there is a motion to vacate, then it becomes much more likely that the United States does not fall through with our financial obligations, that there's government shutdowns, and that there's serious damage to our economy. Because if we've learned nothing else from this show, it's that Kevin McCarthy does not put America first. Uh, ironically, that was Trump saying America first. Kevin McCarthy puts Kevin McCarthy first and Kevin McCarthy's pursuit for leadership. So from a from a Democrat perspective, it's like, what do you want? If there is a motion to vacate that's included and it's reinstituted, reinstated, that's politically a good thing for us and for you. But economically and realistically, it's a ve- probably a bad thing for the country. Um, so I think that the motion to vacate is is very important despite Lauren Boebert seemingly being the only one that is staking her vote on on this uh, arcane procedural rule. So I, I think that we'll probably wind down the discussion soon and we'll kind of remark on the scenarios that you're describing and what we have ahead for the next two years of American government, uh, the next Congress, right? And what you're describing, and I think what any smart analyst will project is this series of standoffs, this gridlock, and this inability to manage and control, in particular, the Republican conference. We should also note that the Democrats are going to have new leadership on their House conference for the first time in quite a long time since um, before the 2006 election, because I know that's when Pelosi became speaker, and she was leader even before that. So this is uh, you know almost 20 years uh, since they've had new leadership, they're going to have new leadership. So we'll see how well that can be managed. But I think that we can say certainly that on the Republican side, there's going to be lots of difficulties in congressional management. And when you ask American voters, and this is proven by polls, not ones that I can bring up right now, but that I've seen in actually some recent polls, but also anecdotally, if you ask Americans what bothers you the most about government and politics, you know what concerns you, what do you dislike? They'll tell you it's gridlock and partisan fighting in Congress. And this is what America has voted for. (laughs) And that's a difficult thing to kind of grapple with, isn't it? Because just like you said, the only reasonable prediction that we can make with the composition of government that we have is 
this situation. And voters, hopefully, should be aware of that going in. I mean, McCarthy in the elections was saying that he was looking forward to another big fight over the debt limit. I mean, this reflects a little bit of his lack of creativity, which we've been talking about throughout this program. It seems as though his instinct is just to rerun the John Boehner era playbook, just do everything we did last time, but without really any of the credibility that Boehner actually had as a budgetary hawk because of the way McCarthy and the Republicans behaved when Trump was in office, right? So they're going to replay the budget fights, the debt fights, but without any credibility behind it. This is his idea for how to run the government. And he told this to the voters. He did interviews where he said this is what he was planning to do. Everyone in the public could foresee, just like you've projected, Justin, that when you've got this divided government, especially divided Congress, because if, even if you had a united Congress and an opposition president, you could at least have a cooperative budgetary process. But here we're having divided Congress. We know that we're in for these two years of fiscal cliff, debt limit fights, and gridlock. But this is what the people voted for. And we can really say that because not only um, do we have a Republican House majority, but they, they won the popular vote in the House elections too. So this is what America voted for, and this is what we're getting. Well, the the other thing that they voted for is a waste of damn time because there's going to be investigations. And you said it's the John Boehner era. John, it might be the John Boehner era on steroids. Instead of investigating the Secretary of State's role in Benghazi, which regardless of how you want to look into the hearings and the political specter, that was something that needed to be investigated, in, in my humble opinion. Um, now, I don't think it was you know, done so in a forthright and <laughs> um, America first type of way. Um, but what they're going to do is they're going to investigate Hunter Biden, this you know poor private citizen who's troubled uh, and you know without any type of proof. I, I don't uh, proof of you know corruption touching the United States government. I, I don't think that that's fair. I don't think that that's appropriate. I, I would say the same thing you know if it were Trump kids and they didn't have any proof. But that I don't even whatever. We'll just leave that silly comment aside. Um, there's going to be proceedings probably to impeach um, the uh, secretary of DHS Mayorkas because they're going to blame him uh, for this long simmering border issue that is a confluence of a variety of factors, John, from the economic standing of the, the countries in Central and South America, all the way up to the fact that Congress hasn't done anything in almost 30 years on immigration. And they really have a, a lot uh, of the blame to go around. So it's going to be these investigations run by folks like Jim Jordan and Marjorie Taylor Greene that, that, that if you want to make the argument that the folks voted for. Folks really voted to give Jim Jordan more TV time if you really want to get into it, because that's going to be the majority of the time. And these these big consequential fights that, that you're um, alluding to, will they'll be important. They'll be very important. But, it, you know, they'll be resolved in, in a matter of a couple of weeks, whereas these investigations will go on for two years. So just kind of a point of clarification about Hunter Biden. I mean, there has been quite a bit of mainstream, credible reporting that this gentleman um, was involved in potentially criminal misdeeds, right? Involving his personal finances. 
And we know that there's been a U.S. attorney's office that's been investigating some of his private business dealings. But I think, Justin, when you say that there's no evidence of wrongdoing, I think maybe what you're referring to is that there isn't any evidence that links uh, any of his potentially criminal activities to the U.S. government, right? And that's significant. It doesn't mean that he is uh, not worthy of investigation because it seems that there's quite a few ways in which he is worthy about investigation. But I think that we can look at their intense uh, desire to investigate him and perhaps evaluate that it might not be in good faith. If we look at the way that they approached what were clear, demonstrable, relevant conflicts of interest that were guiding government policy during the Trump years and how they dismissed all of this out of hand. We had the first president in memory that didn't divest, for example. We saw how he routinely steered government business towards his own properties. We saw even more concerning ways in which government policy might have been linked to these private financial dealings. For example, on the uh, GCC blockade of Qatar, which we've been talking about, things that really merit investigation, and this was all dismissed out of hand by these same characters, we uh, can perhaps judge that the interest in investigating Hunter Biden might not be in good faith, right? And I think that that kind of brings us back, and maybe this is a good way to wind all of this down, to McCarthy. Because McCarthy, one of the reasons that he was not able to become speaker the last time he tried, which was right around the time of the 2016 election, uh, was because he admitted in an interview with Sean Hannity that many of their investigations were just completely politically motivated and pretextual, in particular, the investigation into the tragedy at Benghazi, Libya. And he said, it worked. We got Hillary Clinton's poll numbers down. See, that's why we did it. And <laughs> this hurt his credibility as a political leader at that time. It's funny, you know, today he could make a similar comment. I'm sure people in the post-Trump era might not really even raise an eyebrow. But um, at the time, that was damaging. That was you know, one of the reasons that he was not able to become speaker, the others, you know, we were talking about a little bit, the Walter Jones letter and so on, but this was part of that story. And um, it's funny, you know, McCarthy has admitted that he likes investigations for pretextual political ends. And that's another part of what we're going to be getting in this Congress, whether or not he is indeed the speaker. Yeah. And it's really a sad thing because, there are a lot of things that that should be investigated that the Democrats should have started investigating, like um, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. There's recent excerpts from a book that's you know on the inner workings of the Biden administration where you have, I want to say, Secretary of State Blinken saying the earliest estimates of the fall of Kabul were 18 months out, and then you have William Burns saying no. This is not true. That he's a CIA director. the The worst estimates were in November. Um, so that's like that's a big difference. That's like a sixteen month difference. But that is something that should be investigated. And we had, you know, and it should be investigated in a bipartisan fashion. But it's just not going to happen. Um, Democrats probably don't want to investigate their own administration. Republicans aren't going to do anything with merit and seriousness, it's all going to be political leading into a presidential election in 2024. So it is a a missed opportunity here. And the way that I guess um, we'll wrap this up is it's not going to be a great 
time to be speaker if you're a Republican, right? You're not going to be able to get much done. You're going to have to deal with the rabble rousers on the right. Um, and that's why folks like Jim Jordan, he's just transparent. He's like, no, I would rather be chair of the judiciary and get my TV time rather than serve in a position like the speaker role. But at the end of the day, uh, we don't know how this is going to shake out. I-, I think that the best that we can hope for as a country is whoever emerges as speaker has enough power that they can pass a debt limit ceiling increase. They can pass a, a government funding bill and they aren't totally beholden to to the right. And I think that that probably happens more likely than not with a different candidate who does not have to give into the vacate to motion threats and demands. But at the end of the day, we're probably more likely than not to get Kevin McCarthy and Kevin McCarthy will do stupid things to placate the most hateful and prejudiced and just anti-American members of Congress. And we will find ourselves as a country um, in economic trouble because of this nonsense around the speakership. So um, I, I don't really have a rosy outcome. It's either Kevin McCarthy or Steve Scalise. And hopefully whoever comes out won't totally drive the car off a cliff. And yes, that's just another way in which Kevin McCarthy reminds me so much of those British Tory party politicians. Just when you raised there, Justin, why would he want to be speaker at this time and then take into the job an uncreative list of agenda items that are just copy pasted from another era? I mean, we asked the same question of Liz Truss. Why do you want to become prime minister at a time that the economy is heading for implosion? And in doing so, you come into office and take steps that are completely agnostic to the actual economic circumstances, instead taking trite old dogma, steps that accelerated the implosion that the economy was headed towards. And in just that same way, we're looking at Kevin McCarthy, someone who wants one thing to be the speaker, not because he has any idea about what he wants to do with it or is thinking at all about his place in history or this time in history, but instead just pursuing that label that job title that he could put on his LinkedIn profile. That's the caliber of leader that we're that we're looking forward to welcoming second in line to the US presidency. <laughs>